Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our pleasure again to have you with us today. And we are inviting you to stay with us for the whole hour. We have a very interesting uh, topic today, the Old Testament hope. And I believe that you'll uh, learn a lots of good things, uh, how to live life to the fullest, as um, our uh, forefathers did also. I would like to welcome our panel for today, and I will say hello to Jerry. It's good to have you with us. Great to be here again, Nick. Joe, it's good to have you joining today. Thank you, Nick. It's wonderful to be here. Len, thank you for being part of this. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners, and it's wonderful to have your company today. Denise, thank you for joining Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to what we discussed today. And Lija, it's good to have you with us also. Yeah, I feel very grateful and blessed. Brenton, you are uh, going to facilitate today this discussion and thank you so much for preparing the uh, subject. And um, I will welcome you to the Bible study today and please take us through. Thank you, Nick. Uh, looking forward to uh, presenting this today and sharing uh, between our panel members with those who are listening to this, because a lot of people in this day and age seem to think the New Testament's pretty important, but they don't have a lot of time for the Old Testament. What we're looking at today is, as you said, Nick, the Old Testament hope. However, I just want to read a statement that sort of, it backs up what we've been studying the last few weeks in our panel discussion, because we started off with the world that was perfect and then it got mired in sin. This statement here hit me fairly strongly and I felt that it was good to share it, not only with the panel, but also with those who are listening to this program. Adam and Eve at their creation had a knowledge of the law of God. Now, that's an interesting one in itself. They were acquainted with its claims upon them. Its precepts were written upon their hearts. When man fell by transgression, the law was not changed, but a remedial system was established to bring him back to obedience. The promise of a saviour was given and sacrificial offerings, pointing forward to the death of Christ as the great sin offering was established. But had the law of God never been transgressed, there would have been no death. I wonder whether we've thought about that, Nick, because we've discussed this the last couple of weeks the issue of death and, and that sort of thing, there would have been no death had mm. God's law not been transgressed and no need of a saviour. Consequently, there would have been no need of sacrifices. As I considered that, I, I made a, a note here that I thought was worth sharing. In Genesis 3.15, basically, we have the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible. We touched on that a couple of weeks ago, but it said something along the lines of, um, I will put in a tea between the, you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, of course, when Adam and Eve's first child came along um, in Genesis 4, verse 1, it's, the comment made by Eve is a very interesting one. In the Hebrew, it basically says, I have gotten a man the Lord. She was thinking that her first son might be the long-promised deliverer that Christ had talked about. Unfortunately, we know that tragically he became the world's first murderer. And then you go down through the line of Noah, Abraham, Job, David, the sacrificial system, 
Then on to Isaiah and Daniel, they all had a promise in a resurrection or in the promise of a deliverer or both. And we're going to examine these in the Bible today, the Bible patriarchs, some of their beliefs and their hope not only in the resurrection but also in their heavenly home. Abraham believed in a saviour sacrifice as shown in Genesis 22. Denise, I wondered if you would uh, pray for us because we really need the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we look at this topic together. Thank you. Yes, certainly. Let's um, bow our heads for prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to learn about the hope of the resurrection from the Bible today. Yes. And I want to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our panel discussion, but also um, the may the Holy Spirit touch the viewers who are at home, who are listening, who may be looking in their Bibles as well, and I pray that you will bless them and help give them a sense of hope, uh, especially in these uncertain times in which we're living. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Thank you, Denise. I appreciate that. The first one that we're going to look at today, his name is Job. It's interesting that um, in researching this, I found out that one of the names, alternative names for Job is the afflicted one. And I think we would all agree that that's probably a fairly good definition of this poor man. In the first question that we're going to look at together, we look at a very ringing endorsement that um, Job made, a very ringing statement, probably one of the strongest statements of faith in the whole of the Bible in the resurrection. It's found in Job 19.25-27. to Joe, I wondered if you could read that for us and make some brief comment on it. We have a number of subparts to this question. You may like to also look at verses 21 and 22 in relationship to 25 to 27, because I sense a man here who's in the depths of despair, and yet by the time he gets to 25, 27, we have this ringing uh, declaration that I know that the my Redeemer liveth. Thank you, Joe. I think the whole chapter, actually, Job 19, gives us the background of where Job was. Um, he's in a situation that his wife finds him repulsive. There are children that mock him, which would have been really dishonourable back in those days, disrespectful. And um, also his servants, when he calls out to his servants, they ignore him. We know about his friends. We won't go there just yet. He's hit rock bottom, and, and I don't think he's expecting things to turn around or change very quickly, if ever. In fact, I believe he was anticipating death, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. because everything had fallen apart. He was covered in sores, probably in a lot of pain. And so I'll read these verses, but I don't think he was actually anticipating at death that he would somehow be translated into into heaven or anything. He fully expects to go through the process of corruption and decomposition and that he would it would he would return to the dust that he was made from. Yeah. Let me let me read it. I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes, I and not another how my heart yearns within me. And so this, you know, he he's expecting to be corroded and corrupted, but he believes that he will see his Redeemer 
in bodily, bodily, because it will be his yes. own eyes. Yes. So he's not yeah. expecting a resurrection that are spiritual, like spirits and whatever. So he's expecting a bodily resurrection. He's not going to heaven at death, and he yearns for the day when his Redeemer will come for him, whom he will see with his own eyes. This is not some metaphysical resurrection, but one where he will be flesh and blood with his own eyes, and he will see his Redeemer. A lot of yeah. hope there. I think there's a lot of hope there. Len, you had a thought for us in regard to this. It's very interesting that Job addresses, well, he doesn't address God in this particular instance, but he names him, but not as God, my God or anything like that. He says, my redeemer. Yes, yes, I found that good too, Len. And because Job was in such a terrible and abject uh, situation in his life, He only had something better to look forward to. He couldn't really get anything worse. He names God as my Redeemer, and he then names the things that will happen, that he will be raised physically, everything, and he will see his Redeemer, and he would have comfort in that. And I think that applies to us too. There are probably many of you listening today who have some very difficult situation that you're facing and I think you can relate very much to Job. It can only get better. Yes, that's that's true, Lynn. In verse 21 and 22 of the same chapter, which we haven't touched on but it's worth thinking about, he says something along these lines. Have pity upon me, my friends. Have pity upon me because the hand of God has struck me. He's He's appealing to them. He's pleading with them. I sense here he's pleading with them for their support. Jerry, what do you see? Do you find that interesting? I just want to go back to what Joe said about um, sure, uh, sure. In, in chapter 19, verse 26, where she read, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know. There is great confidence in what he's saying. Mm-hmm. He knows. And and you, you come across that often throughout the New Testament, especially in the writings of David in the Psalms. And also uh, some of the major, what we, what we call major prophets, Isaiah and so forth, they know, and it's repeated over and over again. They have this confidence. It's not, it's not a, an iffy sort of. Well, let's hope that this is what happens. They are convinced. They have that that firm conviction that they will see the Lord. In other words, the whole concept of a resurrection is is firmly embedded in their minds. Can I take that one step further? What's their confidence based on? Joe, you have a comment for us on this too. Yes, in relation to verses 21 and 22, have pity on me, my friends, have pity uh, for the hand of God has struck me. You know, very often we call it victim blaming these days. Yes. We yeah, we to, do these days. Yeah. You know, like you've got yourself, you're in hot water, you're in a real dire situation and we think, well, you know, You've got yourself into this. What did you do? You know, why weren't you? What were you doing? You weren't thinking. You know, um, you've only got yourself to blame for this. And I think it's not very helpful, is it? Ever. Not then, mm. not now. <laughs> mm. Is that always true, though, Joe, that you've got yourself into it? No, no, we can see that. No, it's not the case. I was going to say something in relation to what Jerry was talking about, about trust that Job had in God. And, and I think somewhere else in the chapter he says, Though he kill me, yet will I trust him. Mm -hmm. So he's not afraid of death in a way. He's not coping very well with his situation, but he still trusts God. And even though his wife says to him, curse God and die, 
He says, though, he killed me, yet shall I trust him? Yeah. 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 I know sometimes guys were a bit hard on Job's wife, but try and put yourself in her situation. She's basically lost everything. She's lost her family. She's lost all all her possessions. And her husband's in such a bad state that he may as well curse God and die. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it necessarily, but you can understand it from her perspective. Nick, you had a thought for us. Yes, just on that passage uh, uh, in verse 21, 22, I believe we all who know the story of Job, we have the tendency to judge those three or more friends which um, came to see Job and to uh, be with him while he was struck by this terrible thing, you know, in his life. And we are very quick to judge them, to say that they were doing wrong because they were uh, insinuating that uh, Job did something wrong and he need to put it right with God. Mm. And now Job knew that uh, he was trying to do everything what he could to please God. But interesting in this verse says, have pity on me, my friends, because God struck me. Even Job, it's admitting or accepting that that may be the hand of God. Yes, and, we are so right, quick, and we are so quick to judge those friends who insinuate the same thing. What I would like to say here, and I hope that probably later on we'll touch on that a little bit more, on what Job is declaring through these challenges which he's going through. And he comes to a, a beautiful passage which will come just a little bit later. Yeah, thank you, Nick. The problem, um, Nick, as I see it, is this. He recognizes God's hands on him, hand is on him, but his friends cannot help him because of their mindset. Can you see that? You must have done something wrong. Um, Joe, you touched on this. You must have done something really bad. You claim that you're righteous, but in actual fact, you're not. Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering the way you are. So therefore, they're unable to help him. They're unable to empathize with him because of, um, and really their view is the view of tradition and their understanding of God, which is wrong. I think it's worth remembering that he wasn't struck by the hand of God. No. They did not see it. They didn't understand. And we wouldn't either had it not been recorded for our benefit. So let's Mm. not blame God. (laughs) So, yeah, just keep that. Let's keep that in mind, too. And not to blame, not to blame Job by saying that or even his friends, in, intentionally, I believe, his friends had the good intention. The only wrong thing which they did, actually, which probably will touch on that, is as it happens today, they were judgmental towards this ordeal. They were judgmental. But actually, when they came, that was the understanding. You mentioned, Brenton, about it. historically, people believe that if something wrong happened to them, then the hand of God on them. And mm-hmm. We looking back now, we are fortunate to look at the story and we are able to make some judgments. But sometimes we, we miss the point that these friends actually, they were sympathetic with him to come and comfort him. That's what his friends. But you can be a friend and be judgmental towards your brother. But were they deliberately saying, Nick? Oh, they, of course they were deliberately saying because that's how they understood. 
Instead yeah. of that's me- what I'm saying. Their their thinking is caught in a, a certain pattern, and they're mm. not able to empathise with him, which they'd be able to do if they didn't have that thinking that God is um, punishing you because you're a bad person. If they didn't have that, they would be more empathetic. Jerry, I did put in my notes here, uh, Job chapter one verse nine to eleven, which is. An, where the whole business starts. I wonder if you could sh- sort of share this with us, Jerry, and give yeah. us any thoughts on it. Thank you. Yeah, uh, perhaps I'd start in verse 8 of right. chapter 1. Where, no, where, that's where, fine. That's fine. Yeah, where it says, um, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So God knows his character. He does. And, and he's, he's expressing that to, to Satan. And then Satan uh, counters that with, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? As if to say, well, no wonder, because he goes on to say, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So basically Satan's saying, well, is it any wonder that, um, you know, that he has that connection with you? you? You've made him untouchable. Everything he does turns to gold, as it were, you know, you've given him everything. But of course, God knows his character. And uh, and as we see in the very first chapter already, he loses everything, one thing after another, his, his children, his possessions, everything. And it finishes, the first chapter finishes with the words, then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. You could think, well, just imagine if you put yourself in his position. If one disaster after another happens in your life, and literally you lose everything, almost everything. His, his, he didn't lose his wife, thankfully. <laughs> but, you know, how would you deal with that? And yet he fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. He didn't blame God. Uh, and it's sort of repeated also in, in the next chapter, in chapter 2, in verse 10. This is after his wife says, yeah. yeah. And, and then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women, uh, as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he mm. proves that he is, in fact, the man who God said he was. Yeah. And that, and that is further worked out in the whole book of Job, as yeah. we know. Yeah. Yeah, God was right in his assessment of Job, and he maintained his integrity throughout. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Um, panel, do you um, agree with Jerry's thoughts on this? Do you, um, how do you find it in your own life? Is it easy to um, trust God when everything, as it were, is falling apart? Some of us have been through these experiences. How have you found it, Glenn? Yes, I trust God no matter what. And I suppose um, in some way God has put a hedge around me, and I accept that. Nevertheless, if things do go pear-shaped, as the common expression is, I still trust God. And um, I don't think I've been tested to the extent of Job's testing. 
But I think that is the only thing worthwhile doing in times of trouble. Because if you go to pieces, you've gone to pieces. You remain your integrity with God, then you've got something firm to grasp onto. Mm -hmm. And even if I die, I still have the resurrection of the saints to look forward to. Thank you, Len. Uh, The key word there, I think, is resurrection. Um, As you said uh, earlier on, Joe, he had the hope of the resurrection. Not not immediately then, but he did have the hope of the resurrection. Lydia, you had a thought for us. As it was mentioned that Job was a blameless and upright man and feared God and shunned evil. It Mm -hmm. means that he had a strong relationship with God all his life. He was new as a, a man that adhered to moral principles. And because of that, he could say that I know that my Redeemer lives. When he said that my my Redeemer Redeemer. lives, Mm. he was bound to Jesus. And he was so, his faith was so strong when he says that I will see God. I myself will see him. And not another. Exactly. With my own eyes. I and not another. It doesn't matter that he was very ill and he suffered uh, that terrible sickness to the bones of his uh, body and flesh. You know, I think he was teared apart of so many months of sickness, but his soul was so strong, bonded with God. This is yeah, that's a, that's a, thank you, Lydia. That's a good statement. Nick, you got a thought for us? Yeah, you asked the question, uh, about our own experience, you know, how we... Well, I think it's important, eh? (laughs) Absolutely right. And I I should say this just before I make maybe a comment or two. I thank God for my enemies. And I believe in Job's case, whatever those friends did to him and even being judgmental towards him and not so kind, really strengthened the faith of Job. And his hope, even further. What I would like to say here, my dear friend listening today, if you are judged or if you are condemned by somebody, does that strengthen your faith or discourage you? Because you may go, we just studied a few weeks ago about the crucible. You may go to some trials for your own benefit. Now, I'm not saying here or encouraging that anybody should mistreat their brother in any way. But I would like to draw a lesson here. Don't despair. Don't discourage. Because you cannot remove from you sometimes those people who want to harm you or to do wrong to you. Keep your eye, like Job did, on Jesus. And say like him, my Redeemer lives. And I hope that we'll have time to touch on that how strong was his faith in Jesus? Yeah, in summary, and what we've had so far in these couple of questions, we could say this. His faith in God was strong at the start because we know in chapter 1 before Satan and God had this discussion, uh, he used to pray after his um, sons and daughters had had a party, he would pray that uh, they had not sinned against God in any way. So he had a strong faith back then, but here 
in chapter 19, where we started our discussion today, we're talking about a situation where, as you say, he's lost everything, he's covered in boils, even his friends, try as they might, are not proving to be of much help or benefit to him, and yet he can say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I I see a growth here. There's a statement I had written here, which I'm going to share with you. From the depths of discouragement and despondency, Job rose to the heights of implicit trust in the mercy and the saving power of God. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I believe that that's the statement we need today in our lives. It's the statement, Nick, that our our listeners need that same confidence and same trust, and we, we need that ourselves. I asked the question, or Satan asked the question, uh, why, why do you think uh, Job why is he uh, wor- yeah. worships you? Why? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is his motivation? That's basically behind the question, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, and, and we have to ask ourselves the question as well, because in, 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 a, in a lot of places in the world today, uh, Christians, unfortunately, what is their motive? Uh, now, I have to be careful that I, I don't become judgmental here, but it seems that they they only come to God to be blessed, to, to receive. Give me, give me, give me. Uh, Prosperity and, gospel, is it? That's, that's what I'm thinking. Mm. And, you know, if that's the motivation, then that's wrong. Because the reality of life is that, as we know, sometimes things go awry. They, they, you know, they go wrong. And, and you can lose big time. And I'm thinking of um, what David said in, in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And that is, for many of us, the reality. So you can have confidence in God in the good times and in the bad times, because there are bad times as well. Things don't always go well. And uh, I think if if your motivation is only that uh, things will only go good for me if I I believe in God, then you're in for for a rude awakening. Yeah, yeah, I believe you're right. It, it, it's interesting, though, that some of the finest Christians I've met personally have not been rich people. They've been very poor. I remember when I went to Moldova <laughs> back in 1996, right where, well, within 100 k's of where all the action is happening in Ukraine at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, some of the people I met are the poorest people I have ever met in my life, and yet some of them had a great trust in God, and I remember the minister that I was with at the time, said to me, Brenton, he said, for some of these people, he said their standard of living is never going to improve on this earth. They're going to have to wait till they get to the new earth for uh, an, an improvement in their standard of living. And yet their trust in God was strong. It was it was a very stable trust. We're leaving Job for a while uh, because poor old Job, he had his problems. But the, the patriarch and uh, sweet singer of Israel, David, had a bit to say. Denise, I wonder if you could share with us from Psalm 49. David makes a few interesting statements in a few verses there. I wonder if you could share those with us and give us your perspective on them. Yes, sure, Brenton. Um, chapter 49 is a very interesting chapter. It and, is, isn't um, it? Mm. It is because David's talking about people who rely on their riches and their wealth to save them and even using their wealth as a ransom to pay their way to heaven. And uh, he himself was a, he was a king, so he was, I imagine he had a certain amount of wealth, but he doesn't rely on that and he talks about that. But in verses 6 to 8, it says, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great 
riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. Um, And then David talks in verse 15, he says, his confidence is in Jesus as the uh, redeemer and the person who's going to resurrect him from the dead. He says in verse 15, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And then he goes on to contrast that um, confidence in the resurrection with uh, what the those who rely on, the, on their uh, riches, uh, where they put their confidence. Verse 17 says, for he will take nothing with him. This is the, the rich. Yes. When yes. he dies, his splendor will not descend with him. So his his houses, his property, his possessions. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. So there's no confidence to be found in wealth or riches. Our only confidence in um, eternal life and the resurrection is found in Jesus. I agree with you totally, Denise, but can we still, even though we mouth the right words, is it, is it sometimes the case, do you think, and I'm not just addressing this to Denise, but to all the panel, can we still in the back of our minds have a false confidence in what we've got? Or, or who we are without recognising that every every part of what we are and who we are and what we've got comes from God. Is, is it possible, do you think, to even as a Christian to be saying the right things and uh, yet in heart not actually be with God? Joe, you've got a thought on this for us? Thanks. Well, it's very easy to associate um, when things are going well, when we're feeling blessed that, that we're on the right track with God. Yes. You see, just this is like the opposite of Job. Job, he lost all these things and people said, you've done something wrong. It's easy to feel that God has abandoned you because you have lost everything. Mm. And on this other side, we've got the psalmist saying, look, you know, just because you appear to be blessed by the Lord and everything's going well for you, don't you know that you are no different to the beasts that perish? In fact, he repeats it twice. There's a verse 12 and verse 20. Yes. There's yes. no difference between you and just a, a beast that perishes. Don't think yourself somehow especially favoured you know, by the Lord. Yep. Absolutely. So I think it's important that, you know, even when things go well, that may not indicate where our heart is with God. And I think we have to, you know, look to ourselves and our relationship with God to know where we're at, not to judge by externals because externals um, can fool us. I think that's a very good point, uh, Joe. Uh, Len, what did you have for us on this? I was talking with a man last night who's basically, like Joe, lost everything. He lost his possessions. He had two houses. He had a factory lost his wife. He said to me, I have almost nothing. And he said, I am happier now than I have ever been. Wow. And I took that, I took a lot of um, encouragement from his statement. Now, what he said to me and what Job, what the situation of Job is, that God was a constant in their lives. And I think we need to make God a constant in our life. And the other things we can see is transitory or not constant. There'll be 
ups and downs, but if God is a constant in our lives, we have only resurrection and to live forever and ever with our Lord who loves us to look forward to. Len, can I flesh that one out a little bit more or tease it out a little bit more? Did he give you any indication at what point that he his focus went off of his two factories or whatever he had, two houses or whatever? Um, did his focus come off of that? At what point did his focus come off of that and he began to realise that his happiness was found elsewhere? Because I think this is important. In his case, God remained a constant. Yes. And that saw him through it all. Financially, he lost probably a couple of million dollars. Wow. But he he remained constant uh, and uh, he, he kept his relationship with God going. That's what Job did. That's what we need to do. Yeah, thank you. Lydia, you had a thought for us too. <laughs> I'm thinking many times to all those people which are maybe on the numbers of thousands that lost their houses through the flood or through yes. the fires before, yep. but now recently mm-hmm. in, in Queensland and now in Victoria, yep. we, where are so big floods and so many people are messed up in lives with uh, losing the necessities. We're not talking here about the, you know, being a millionaire or having the, you know, the luxuries but we're mm, talking about mm. the necessities. And yeah. I'm praying for those people to look for God because God, if you have God in your life, you have everything and God covers everything. Mm. Okay. Joe? I'm really glad that Lynn mentioned the, the constant, the importance of God being a constant in our Absolutely. lives. Absolutely, yes. Um, because I refer to, I think it's Deuteronomy where, Moses speaks to the people of Israel and he says, when, when you go into your chapter eight, chapter eight, yep, Mm. go into promised land, your flocks have multiplied and you've got silver and gold galore, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, gave you everything that you have. And it's so hard. It's probably perhaps easier to remember God with little than it is when there's a lot around to distract us and make us feel good about ourselves. And um, it's easy to forget God. And I think the Bible mentions this a few times through scriptures where, you know, you got, you got rich, you got fat, and then you forgot your Lord. And so I think that constancy through good times, especially as well as bad, that um, if we let go the hand that holds us, then we're adrift, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, I think it's, it's much harder in the uh, good times, though, Joe, than it is in that's, the bad and times. That's what Moses is saying, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, Jerry? Yeah, and, and just to add to that, people often say, well, I deserve what I've got. I've worked hard for it. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and is a certain, that wrong? Is that no, wrong? The, no, there's a certain logic in that, isn't there? I mean, uh, effort should be rewarded. <laughs> hard work should be rewarded. But but the point is that um, your focus can shift from God to yourself, and that's where it becomes a problem. And it's like we can't do a thing. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And we need to remind ourselves of that as well. If we have talent, it comes from God. If we have energy and, and strength, it comes from God. And good health, everything comes yes. from God. Mm. So to to God be the glory, not to us. Yeah. 
Good point. Um, what we've studied so far, though, and what Denise has shared with us, I find interesting because both of these people that we've looked at so far in our study today were basically rich people. Did you stop and think about that when we were looking at the study? Job was a rich man. It, said, it says at the beginning that he was the richest man in the East. And David, of course, was a king. So he wasn't exactly short of a bob or two, as we would say in Australian parlance. Denise, did you have a thought for us? Yes, I did. I think that we change, our circumstances change, but yes. God changes. And the Bible um, makes lots of testament to that, that God, no matter our feelings or what happens to us, God is always there waiting for us to call on him. And he's faithful. Our families might be angry with us, but God's promises can be trusted. Mm, thank you, Denise. That is very, very true. Nick, can you share with us from Psalm 71? Uh, there's a couple of verses there, particularly verse 20, but preparatory to that or prior to that. Verse 5 and 6 um, actually give a bit of background to what you're about to read to us. I wonder if you could share that with us and uh, give us your perspective on it. Thanks, Nick. Yes, Brenton, uh, I will go to Psalms uh, 71 first, indeed. But uh, I may just read a couple of other verses uh, sure, in uh, sure. Romans by, and by in, all means. And in means. Matthew. And I would like you, panel, to also uh, give your um, input on this one. But in chapter 71 in Psalms, verse 20 says this, You have allowed me to suffer much hardship, but you will restore me to life again and lift me up from the depths of the earth. Now, David is also saying, uh, backing up these things, he's recognizing that God permitted on him much suffering. And if we study the life of uh, David, you know, we can see that, you know, sin always has consequences. And that's important to notice. Verse 5 and 6 in the same chapter, it says this, O Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trust you, O Lord, from my childhood. Mm. Yes, you have been with me from the birth, from my mother's womb, and have cared for me. No wonder I am always praising you. Even when he was suffering, even when he saw that God brought upon him some discipline, he declared that I'm able to stand firm and faithful to you because I have an experience with you, a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Let's look at quickly another verse in yeah. uh, Romans this time. And it's a well-known chap- one, isn't it, Nick? <laughs> yes. And look at this one in chapter mm-hmm. 8, verse uh, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work for the good, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, even if you're going through some difficult times, God can work it out for your good. And that's what I said a bit earlier, that Job, through his trial, even though Satan thought that will crash him, Mm. he actually got even stronger. Even yes. stronger. And just to mention something about Job, you know, he was able to say later on 
he was able to say that my ear could hear about you, but now my eye have seen yes. you. Yeah, chapter 42, verse 5. Mm, that's, that's right. Thank that's you. Nice. And just another one uh, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 10, which Jesus himself spoke about here. It says here in verse 29, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. My dear friend, if you're going through some difficult time, God knows everything. And God wants to be with you. God wants to give you peace. God wants to give you victory. Hang on on Jesus. Thank you, Nick. And any any other thoughts there? Uh, Joe, you had a thought for us in regard well, to this series. When, yes, when reading this text, it reminded me of the story, well, the history in 1958 when um, the Chinese Mao Zedong, is it, who... Um, ordered that sparrows be exterminated and as you know because they ate too much grain they calculated how much grain each sparrow ate and so they went on this killing spree um, people were encouraged to kill every sparrow they could find and that apparently led to an ecological disaster because then they had bed bugs and locusts and yes, it just yeah. unbalanced the whole system the, whole the point ecosystem. is though that what yeah. i like about it is that you know god sees even a sparrow fall mm-hmm. He sees yes. he's not unaware. Yes. He's not unaware yeah. what you're going. How many sparrows are you worth? And so God is not blissfully unaware or he, he doesn't care or is busy with other things. He's he is involved, aware. He sees. He's involved. He sees exactly yeah. what's happening, exactly yeah. what we're feeling, what we're going through, and he cares and he's watching. And so we could take a lot of comfort from that. I don't know well, what he was thinking when they were killing all those sparrows in China, though. But uh, they learned a lesson, didn't they, about ecological disaster? <laughs> now we come to the prophet known as the gospel prophet, Isaiah, probably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And he makes a couple of statements in Isaiah 26, which are uh, quite profound. Len, I wonder if you can share with us, because it's regarding the resurrection, but he's uh, contrasting the different outcomes of the resurrection as it affects the wicked, and as it affects the righteous. Yes, well, if you read the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah had a lot to say about the wickedness that the people were practicing, but uh, particularly in the latter part of Isaiah, it's a message of hope. And here we are pretty much in the middle in Isaiah chapter 26, and there are two classes of people, both classes of people, are subject to death. So I'm going to read verse 14, and this is talking about the class of the people who we would describe as wicked or disobedient, and it says, they are now dead. I'm reading from the NIV. Yes. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. Now, I find that very interesting because there are a lot of people around the place who uh, feel that when somebody dies their spirit migrates to another place. But uh, here it seems to suggest 
that this, the person himself or herself is the spirit. Anyhow, those departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Mm. Now let's talk about the wicked. But then in verse 19, we have this statement, but you're dead. In other words, the people who are faithful and true to God are being called your dead. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So here's the contrast. The dead don't rise to uh, eternal life. God's people, the faithful ones, do. Now, there's another text in Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 1, regarding the state of the dead, the wicked dead. And the Lord says here, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, not a root or a branch will be left to them. In other words, those people who choose to ignore God's uh, offer of grace are going to be annihilated. Now, I know this is part of a much wider study, but it's in line with um, Isaiah, where I just read the state of the wicked, is that they will not rise. They are annihilated. Yes. Those who are faithful have, like Job, like us and like many others before us, have the uh, blessed hope of the return of Jesus. And if we've died to be resurrected, if we haven't died, we will join those who are resurrected to meet the Lord in the air and the Bible promises, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. That's my hope. Thank you, Len. That's wonderful news for us and for all our fellow Australians, isn't it? basically. I found this statistic interesting. 44% of Australian Christians believe in the resurrection. Did you get that? 44%. 33% of Australians, and I'm assuming these are non-Christians, do not believe in the resurrection. 25% do not know what they believe. I struggle with this. I, I seriously struggle with this. If you're a Christian today in Australia and you do not believe in the resurrection as the Bible teaches it, what are you placing your hope in or what hope have you actually got? Nick? That reflects, Brenton, actually the situation we are in in Australia now from uh, a country which just not many years ago, maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, believed in God and they declared that they are Christians like 90 something percent. It fall down to 40 Four, 46 percent yeah, and right. that reflects actually these people who still believe in uh, in God uh, they will believe in resurrection I believe yeah. Mm. but yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's very interesting the statistic I just want to note that yeah thank you Lynn yes well you asked the question what hope do they have I did <laughs> well basically the only hope they have is that they're going to die and that'll be the end of the matter well, that's not a great hope. My wife and I were discussing certain people last night who don't have the hope of the resurrection, who don't believe in God, or at least don't take God seriously. 
And as far as I can see, they're going through, through the motions. They're yes. living and eating and raising children, and then when they pass on, they expect their children will do the same. It's actually life without purpose. But when we trust in God, we believe in the res- resurrection, we have something to look forward to, a purpose to live. And I, I understand most Australians. I have a friend now who's quite ill. He just thinks when he dies, that's it. That's it. That's the average Australian view. Yeah, yeah. Nick? I just want to uh, make a point here. We were mentioning those people that don't have any hope. My dear friend and panel, depends on us also. Depends on how we approach people around us, how we share our faith in God, in Jesus. And if 44 or 46% of Australians who believe in God will be intentional to share their hope in Jesus Christ with many others, the number could could switch and will not just say that they are doomed. Nobody is doomed to perish. Jesus died for every single person on this planet Earth. And it's our privilege to share the good news, the gospel, with as many people as possible. That's what we do, these programs. That's what we broadcast on radio, because we want to share with those people who don't have hope. Mm -hmm. Nick, I picked up on what you said. It's a good point. But I also picked up on what Len said, that I think, Len, you used the words, they're going through the motions. I find that tragic because... If you genuinely believe in the resurrection as the Bible teaches it, shouldn't it affect your lifestyle? Shouldn't it affect not just your thinking processes, but the way you live your life and all the other aspects of it as well? Has anyone got any thoughts for us on that? The answer is yes. I think a resounding yes. Yes. I think um, the fact that only 44% of Australian Christians believe in the resurrection is probably because of the confusion around, you know, what happens at death. If many of these Christians believe that they become disembodied spirits and travel to heaven and ever, you know, are watching their loved ones here on earth, well, why would we need a resurrection, you know, if they're in heaven already? And those who did evil, well, you know, they're in hell. Um, Or they could be in purgatory. And, I mean, these are just some of the, the fallacious ideas yeah and beliefs so Mm. i think there's a lot of confusion i think if people understood or studied and understood what the bible actually talks about what happens and and Mm. when it happens that figure could change but at the moment i think there's a lot of ignorance if you like and confusion i'd agree but i just want to emphasize on the point i said earlier i believe that that reflects you know the people who believe in God, because uh, even if they don't understand about the state of death, you know, and where the soul goes and whatever is, they still believe in resurrection because most of the people who believe in Jesus, they will believe that Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And um, this point can be discussed, but probably the reflection on that statistic is that many people moved away from yeah. believing in God, trusting yeah. in God and in the Bible. Well, therefore, as uh, Len says, their hope is certainly not a, a blessed hope, is it? 
Legia, the very last person we're looking at today is a guy that we all know well. His name is Daniel. We know him from the lion's den. We know him from various other things. But here, right in the very last chapter of Daniel 12, he says a few things. I wonder if you would share those with us, Legia, in closing our study for today. Um, as we read in uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He does, yes. And it says... I would like to read a little bit before that. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. We observe here two classes of people. So God's Old Testament revelation culminates with this declaration. Death is compared to sleep. And uh, those who are dead will be resurrected. Those who serve the Lord will receive eternal life. And those who didn't will be condemned to eternal death. But God also assures Daniel that he will be resurrected to a new life as the very end. And as we read in verse 13, it says, As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. He hasn't received it yet, Lydia. Yes, exactly. So here we observe that death is similar to a rest from faithful labor. But afterwards will come the sweet inheritance, which is eternal life with the Lord. And I have here a note, which I really want. I found it very interesting. Sure. Share it It with us. The life giver will call up his purchased possessions in the first resurrection. And until that triumphant hour, when the last trump shall sound and the vast army shall come forth to eternal victory, every sleeping saint will be kept in safety and will be guarded as a precious jewel who is known to God by name. By the Wonderful power, promise. Yes. By the power of the Savior that dwelt in them while living, And because they were partakers of the divine nature, they are brought forth from the dead. That's a very powerful hope for me and for those who love the Lord. Yeah, I think it is for all of us. Any other comments from our panel regarding this? Jerry? I notice the consistency. Yes. Um, Yeah, there is a consistency. We've read in Isaiah already. In uh, chapter 26, verse 19, part of verse 19, it says, Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. That is consistent with uh, what Daniel says, or what Lydia just read out in, in chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the yes. earth shall awake. Now, what do you awake from? From sleep. Yes. And, and that, that is a constant in the Bible. Uh, Jesus made it very, very clear in, uh, in, in uh, John chapter 11 when he uh, with the story of Lazarus. He says, yes. Lazarus is dead. He and did. He says, well, he's dead. 
He's yeah, asleep. but first of all, he said Lazarus is asleep, he's and I'm going to right. wake him up. That's right, yeah. So they said, oh, well, if he's asleep, he'll be okay then. And so Jesus had to clarify what he meant by that. He said, no, he's dead. So you see that theme throughout the old, well, even even what we read in in what we call the New Testament, the Gospels, essentially they they were people, I mean, the the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So they were living, if you like, in in the Old Testament times. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in summary, I think today we could say from Adam and Eve right through to what Lydia's just shared with us from the Old Testament and even Malachi, there was a hope in two things. There was a hope in a deliverer who was going to come, and there was a hope in the resurrection. Now, the key point that I was thinking about this is that these hope, this hope rather, it was based totally upon God's promise, not any physical evidence that they had seen at that point. But in the New Testament, Paul talks about how we eagerly wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So I think those of us who are getting a bit older probably appreciate that, that um, the redemption of our bodies is coming and coming soon. I want to finish by just making this little comment. We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. That's a resounding statement to finish our study today. Joe. I wondered if you would share in prayer with us. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the promise of Jesus' return and that although we do not understand everything, Lord, we can rely that there is more to life than appears on the surface. Yes. Help us to place our trust in you. We pray for your guidance and strengthening of our weak faith. Bring us and every listener who reaches out to you in hope into this hope of eternal life when Jesus returns to redeem us from death and suffering. It may seem hard to believe, but this is what the Bible promises, that Jesus is coming soon and all who put their trust in him, whether dead or alive, will meet him in it, meet him to eternal life. And we cling to this. Draw all ever closer to your heart and give us a spirit of appreciation and desire for something better, much better than all that we currently hold precious. All our efforts and resolutions are flimsy at best, so we place ourselves and anyone listening who desires something better than this life has to offer in your loving hands. In Jesus' precious name, Mm. amen. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing today on the wonderful hope which uh, we could learn from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I hope that each one of us will live this amazing uh, hope which uh, God blesses us all. But I'm inviting you next time, my dear friend, joining us again, because we are going to talk about resurrection before the cross. That will be a very interesting one. I hope that you'll be able to join us. Until then, may God richly bless you and trust in Jesus. Have hope.